I got to tell you, it's awesome to be with you guys today. Um, I've been looking forward to this for some time. Uh, Tim called me months ago and said, how can I get on your dance card, so to speak? And so we scheduled a day to come. It, it feels like forever since I've been here. Some of you, I was looking forward to reconnecting and, and being with you again. And yet, I, as I come today, it's really bittersweet. Because of that, I was looking forward to reconnecting. One of the key people I wanted to see was Chris. You know, every time I came before, he's the one that put my headset on. He's the one that did all this stuff as far as productions. He's the one that I sent slides to and all those things. And he always did it with such grace and which is such a heart of serving. And uh, so when Tim called me, it was just really just a shock. And so before we open the word, I just want to open my heart to you a little bit. Uh, this is something I told Tim the other day when we talked, when he called me and told me about Chris. And, and um, hopefully it'll be helpful to you, you know. There is a number of years ago that I was at the church. I was a pastor at Desert Springs Bible Church for over 30 years and pastor at Camelback Bible Church for 10 years before that. And and uh, I was at a meeting with some guys, and we were praying for what was coming up with the church. And I get home, and my wife, Emily, very tenderly uh, told me my sister, Anne, who was only 32, had died in her sleep that night. And I had gone home to get cleaned up and ready to go back and do a wedding. Candidly, I didn't want to go. I didn't want to be there. Probably like some of you this morning. You're here confused, you're hurt, you're frustrated. You may not even want to be here this morning. I get that because I've been there. And even as I went back and did the wedding by God's grace, he gave me the ability to push through my own feelings. Um, and I was glad that I did that, but my wife was making plans to fly back to North Carolina to be with my family there. And so we flew back and candidly at the memorial service, as we were going through this, I had such a range of emotions. I loved my sister, but I was confused. Why in the world would this happen? She was probably the, she wasn't probably, she was the best athlete in the family. There were five boys and two girls, and she was the best athlete. She's an incredible volleyball player, basketball player, softball player. I mean, she did it all, and there was no apparent reason why she would die. It was just a heart issue that none of us knew was there. And so as I'm sitting in that service, I'm confused and I'm frustrated and frankly, I'm angry. And yet God did something in the course of that service through one person, through pastor or preacher, little country preacher. And he gets up and he says this. He starts asking the question all of us had, why would God do this? Why would God allow this? Why would God take such a good woman as Anna? I mean, a pastor's wife who gave so much of her time, so much of her effort for other people. Why would God take a mother of three young children? The youngest was a baby that was not that old. Why, why, why? And he went all through these questions. And he said this, he says, why? I don't know why. And then he says, but just because I don't know why, don't mean I don't know nothing. Let me tell you what I do know. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You know, I, I got to tell you, that was it. It's horrible grammar, I get that. <laughs> but it's great theology, and it's exactly the touch point that we come back to often. That's why it's so important to be here to worship today, to have reinforced that Jesus loves me, this I know. Why? Not the circumstances, because the Bible tells me so. And we have the faith to hold on to that. That's the question. 
As we look at this passage, you know, the series you've been going through is, who do men say that I am? That was a question that Jesus asked his disciples. And one of the names that so many people gave Jesus was teacher, rabbi. Because he taught, as the Gospels tell us, as one with authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees, not even people that were more learned and structured than he, but he taught in such a way that when he spoke, people knew that God had just spoken to them, that he was unfolding a way of truth more clearly to them. And so consequently, incredible crowds came around him. So much so that what Ron read to you today in Mark chapter 4, which is the essence of what we're going to talk about today, they were pressing around him so much so that he gets with some of his disciples and he gets in a boat and he pushes out on the Sea of Galilee a little way from the shore. Now, there's probably a couple of practical reasons why he would do that. One, because the line of sight was better. He could see people and they could see him. He was just not lost in a crowd of humanity pressing around him. Also, I don't know if you are aware of this, but water is a natural amplifier. They didn't have headsets and sound systems like we do today. And so it's an incredible crowd. But if you're over water, that that sound just transmits incredibly well. So you can hear even the smallest of things. So I think there are some practical reasons why he did that. It's not spelled out in the scripture other than he did this. And it says, and he taught them in parables. Now, what is a parable? That's going to be important for the rest of this because all of chapter 14 are parables that Jesus taught. Well, a parable literally means to throw alongside of something. It means it's a comparison. It's a similar, something that's like or as. And so some people have put it this way. A parable is an earthly story that teaches a heavenly truth. And that's how Jesus oftentimes taught. Parents, for those of you that have kids in the room, that's a great way to teach your children. That was probably Jesus' most favorite form of teaching is he would tell stories and he would explain through things that they understood at their level. And this morning we're going to see some examples of that as we go through these parables. You know, there's, I love what one commentator said this. He said, parables are like stained glass windows in a cathedral. They may look dull and lifeless from the outside, but they're brilliant and radiant on the inside. Have you ever been in a great cathedral or a church that has stained glass? Isn't that true? On the outside, they're pretty. They're nice. But when you walk inside, what happens? Man, they pop. It's incredible. You're like, wow. The detail and the beauty and the pictures and the story that's there all begins to unfold. That's the way a parable is. From the inside, from someone who is a follower of Jesus as he tells these stories, they begin to understand in a clearer way. But those who are on the outside, sometimes it confuses them even further. It confounds them. They don't see the picture. It's all tied up in understanding the person of Jesus There are over probably 60 recorded parables in the Gospels, different ones that Jesus used to teach. And so this was one of the things in narrative material, which is what the Gospels are. They tell the greater story of Jesus and the Gospel. But the greater story is this. I just lost my throat. Sorry. But the greater story is how Jesus came, he loves us, and he wants to teach people about how to know God, how to know God through him, and how to know how to live in such a way that's pleasing to God. And so there's some people on the outside still, there's some people on the inside, and Jesus is teaching all these different parables. Now we see in this passage, some of the ones that you may be familiar with from other places are, have you ever heard about building a house on a rock instead of the sand? 
I bet you have. Even if you come from an unchurched background, you probably have heard that somewhere because there's a lot of allusions to it. What about the prodigal son? Yeah, that's a parable. That's a story. But actually, there's not just one lost son in that parable. There are two lost sons, aren't there? The one who stayed home was also lost as the parable begins. What about uh, different things as far as a lamp under a bushel? The Good Samaritan, I bet you heard that. There's hospitals that are named Good Sam, Good Samaritan. So these are parables that you're familiar with. This morning we're going to look at some that are also here. In verses 3 through 9, the section that Ron read for us, it talks about a parable, a parable of a sower, of seed, and of soils. And so basically... I'm not going to explain it to you, but what Ron read to you is there's four different. There's a sower that goes out to seed, that goes to sow seed, and then there's four different types of soils and four different types of results, right? So what's the first one? The sower sows the seed, and it falls on hard ground, ground that's trodden down, ground that's walked on. And because it's hard like that, it's sort of like soil here in Phoenix when people have traipsed, walked on it. Basically, you throw seed on that, what's going to happen? It's not going to penetrate. And so birds come, and the birds eat it. If you see a flock of doves right now on an area that's grassy, it's probably because someone's put a winter lawn in. Some of you have had that experience, and some of you have seen it. Anytime a golf course or even a city or anything, there's a whole bunch of birds, and you drop it, they just fly up in your face. It's because they're there eating the seed. They aren't there just because they like that place. It's because they're seed. Well, that's the same thing that he's talking about. When you see this, know that in danger of birds coming and eating it. Now, he didn't tell them what it meant yet. He just said this is what happens. There's a second kind of soil, and that soil is something that's rocky. We wouldn't know anything about that in Phoenix, would we? No, soil that's just like very shallow, and you put seed on that, and it says, and when a seed is there, it gets some water, it goes down, it germinates, but when the sun comes up, what happens? It wilts. It just goes away. You know, when my wife and I first came to Phoenix, we were candidating, as I said, at Camelback Bible Church, and it was in March. And all the people in the church were going, look how green the mountains are. (laughs) I'm from North Carolina. My wife is from Tennessee. Dude, those are green mountains, okay? Lots of leaves all over the trees. And they're looking at these mountains, and they're saying, look how green the mountains are. I'm going, you people have been in the sun way too long. I'm not sure I want to make the trip out here. Now, 40 years later, what do I say? Look at the mountains. Look how green they are. Well, how long does that last? Not very long. When the winter rains hit, there's seed that pops up. It's desert grasses. But do they last through the summer? Duh. No. No way do they last through the summer. Why? Because they get scorched. Well, there's some other seed that falls on ground, and it's infested with weeds. And as the seed begins to grow, as the plant begins to grow, so the weeds grow up. And why do you need to weed your garden? Because it will choke out the fruitfulness of the seed that's sown. And then there's other seed that's sown and it lands on good ground. And what happens? It produces a harvest. It produces fruitfulness, sometimes 30, sometimes 60, sometimes 100 fold. I don't know if you guys have ever had it, and this is... I don't get any money from this, but I'll make a commercial advertisement for you. If you want some great sweet corn, go to Verde Valley. And you get off at Middle Verde Road, you go past the casino, keep going past the casino. Okay, that's a whole other type of story. Okay, go past the casino and you will find a farm on the right side and they have truckloads of sweet corn. It is awesome. It's some of the best stuff. You don't need butter, you need salt, you don't need pepper. It is good the way it is. Well, anyway... 
I got to think about that one day. You know that's one kernel of corn that goes in the ground that produces this whole ear, and not just one ear, but multiple ears of corn that people benefit from. That's what Jesus is saying. Look, when it falls on good ground, it brings forth a great harvest. And that's the picture that's there. Now, he doesn't give the understanding or interpretation to later, and he sort of hits the pause button and gives some of the purpose for parables. Now, some commentators have said this is the hardest passage in the entire gospel to understand. So, Tim, thank you a lot. I really appreciate, as you look through this, I'm sure you did not even give that a consideration or a thought. So we'll ask somebody to come in who doesn't have to live here. Okay. So verses 10 through 12 is the purpose of the parables. Listen. And when he was alone, Jesus, those around him with the 12, asked him about the parables. So they're asking him about this parable he just taught and other parables he'd given. And Jesus says to them, to you, it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those who are outside, everything is in parables. So he's teaching two different people. He's teaching a group of people in the crowds that were outsiders. They didn't understand. They weren't followers of Jesus. They hadn't come to accept Jesus and to receive him yet. And there were others who had. They recognized him. Who do men say that I am? Like Peter said, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And they're all in. So those are the ones he says to you. Those who are on the inside, you're like on the inside of the cathedral. You see the beauty of that stained glass. But there's others that are on the outside and aren't able to fully appreciate it. And so those who haven't come to faith yet. But then he gives a purpose statement so that, and this is what really blows your mind in not such a good way, that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. What? I thought that was the point. I thought you want to be perfectly crystal clear so that people will understand and respond. What's with this? It's a difficult passage of scripture and there's a lot of different interpretations of this. Let me just give you what I understand it to be and, and it may help at least a little bit more, but you may also leave a little dissatisfied with that answer, so work with it and pray about it and search for yourself. He's actually quoting at that point Isaiah chapter 6 and a passage in Jeremiah. And what he is saying is Isaiah is speaking against the children of Israel who have had prophets come to them, who've had scripture written to them, and they reject the prophets, they reject the scriptures. And what Isaiah is saying, look, there comes a time when God says, enough is enough. You've had all of this light. I'm going to judge you. I'm going to bring some hard things in your life, which happened for the people of Israel through the exiles that were there. And he's saying, this is what's happening. I think that's what Jesus is saying. The question is, why do some receive it and some reject it? In some cases, it's because people have not responded to the light that they've already had. So in a sense, God hardens their heart. Now, I know that sounds harsh, but do you know the story of Pharaoh? Do you know the story of Moses and the children of Israel? When they, Moses comes to the Pharaoh in Egypt and he says, let my people go, what did Pharaoh do? What did he say? Yeah, sure, out of here. You guys are, you know, I'm, I'm fed up with you guys anyway, so leave. Is that what Pharaoh says? No. Matter of fact, that's what Pharaoh says, isn't it? No, I'm not going to do that. 
So multiple times through that narrative, if you read in Exodus, it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. But then it shifts to say God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? He was operating with what the nature of Pharaoh's decisions and heart was already. And he solidified that hardness so that the people would be brought out of the land with the people of Israel and the people of Egypt knowing there's only one true God. Yahweh, I am. Every one of the plagues that then came were against the gods of Egypt. And God was setting it up to say, okay, you think you can take me, I will take you on your home court. So there can be no question. And I want to solidify this decision. So if you're going to harden your heart as the Pharisees did, as Pharaoh did, as others did, God said, okay, I'll harden your heart to the nth degree so that maybe ultimately you will turn and come. But it's going to be through difficulty. It's going to be through hardship. So that is somewhat of an understanding of how God is working. It's to confirm the nature of their heart. One commentator said this, the sense of Mark 4, 11 through 12 is that Jesus' parables confirm the state of people's hearts. And so I hope that helps you a little bit to understand this, but he's addressing those people who have already been rejecting. There's another way in which this may be an act of God's grace because we're responsible for the light that we have. He may be limiting the difficulty and the judgment that comes upon them because they're not ready yet. They have rejected and rejected and rejected. He said, okay, I'm a lesson what you can understand so that your judgment will be lighter. Again, that would be an act of God's grace if that's the case. <clears throat> John Calvin said this, they must endure the blame of their own blindness and hardness of heart. So basically, God's operating within the context of what they've already demonstrated. Now, what about this parable itself, verses 13 and following? What does it say? Let me read this to you. And so Jesus said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And most people believe Jesus is the sower and the word, the seed is the word of God. The seed is the good news of the gospel. He goes on to say, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that's sown in them. In other words, there's a hardness of heart. It lands, but they just don't go anywhere with it. Have you ever talked to somebody that's like that and you say, I just don't get it. Why don't you understand? There are people who have just aren't willing to learn. They aren't willing to listen. Uh, I've got a friend of mine who I love dearly. He's a great guy, but they've come to the church a few times. We've had conversations. We've talked about the good news, and he says, I just can't believe that. I love you, but I don't believe the same way that you do. So he's basically shut the door. That's a hard ground. I'm praying that someday that the Spirit of God is going to soften that ground. And so the seeds that have been sown will come to faith. But in the meantime, what happens is he's in danger of Satan taking it away. And again, perhaps it's because he's such a good guy. He doesn't understand that he's a sinner in need of his Savior. That's one of, the, one of my hunting buddies. He's exactly that way. He's a great guy. He's more moral than most Christians I know. But because he is, he doesn't see the need to have forgiveness of his sins. He sort of thinks, well, God, will, will, if he weighs in the balance, I, I'll, I'll make it. I'm better than most Christians I've ever done business with. 
And sadly, he's right as far as the out. But that's a hard ground, an unwillingness for the seed to penetrate. Jesus goes on to say, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, but they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word. Immediately, they fall away. In other words, they hear it, and it makes sense to a degree. And they receive it, and they're excited about it. But then difficulty comes, and they say, mm, I didn't sign on for this. I'm out of here. You know, as a young woman, a single mom, who also my wife and I befriended, and Emily spent a lot of time with her, and she had no church background whatsoever. And yet she was concerned about her two teenage daughters. And so she thought, i got to have help. So she starts coming to church. She starts sitting through worship services. She hears the truth because of her concern for her daughters, which is a legitimate deal. Several months into it, she comes. She says, I'm feeling it. I'm getting it. I'm feeling it now. I, I, I'm understanding what you're talking about. But you know what? It wasn't very many months, and she, she was gone, not around. Still a good person, but this was no. And you know one of the reasons is because a lot of her friends that she used to party with and now I think is still partying with would come to her and say, hey, yeah, you got to go to church. You can't do this. I mean, say hi to Jesus for us. You know, really tongue-in-cheek, really snarky. But she chose friends over the difficulty of identifying with Jesus. You know, sometimes people fall away because of that type of thing. You know, there was a... In John chapter 12, it talks about how even the authorities, many of them believed in Jesus, but they wouldn't profess Jesus because they were fearful of those that were still in the synagogue. They were fearful of losing their possession. You know, then there were some that fall on the weed-infested soil. What are the weed-infested soil? He talks about that. <clears throat> he says, and others are the ones sown among thorns, and they are the ones who hear the word but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires of other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Now see, what is that about? You know, I don't know exactly other than to say there's a lot of times people come and they profess to have an understanding of who Jesus is and, and they begin, but there's, there's other concerns of the world. It says riches, the things of this world, I think, is the bigger thing. And the desire to do that. Did you know that if you read about the history of missions in Hawaii, that there's some great things that happen with missionaries in the Hawaiian Islands, but it's also very controversial. Because there were many of those missionaries who went there to share the gospel, who found it was a great way to profit financially and materially, and they were some of the largest landholders in the entire islands. Now, is that not a possibility of saying the gospel is being compromised and choked out its fruitfulness because of the great profit that there is? You know, it's, a, it's important to understand that that can happen to anybody. But it's not just riches. It's other things of the world. There's a friend of mine that I pastored with when I was in Dallas, and we were in a church plant. We were there the second Sunday they met. You guys understand what it is to tear down and set up every week? Well, we were doing that. And uh, by the way, isn't it great to have a facility that you can meet in where you don't have to do that every stinking week? Yeah, this is awesome. God's provided in some amazing ways. But <clears throat> this whole concept was that we were there, and my pastor, Dave, 
was talking to a friend and he was sharing the good news of Jesus with this friend. And the friend kept coming back, Dave, I can't believe that. I can't believe that. I can't believe that. I've got too many intellectual objections. And that was his byline. I've got too many intellectual objections. I can't believe it. Dave said, I have no idea why I said next what I said other than it was a work of the Spirit of God. He said, I looked at this guy and I said, okay, tell me what's her name. He looked up. He said, what? He said, I was into it too far already. He said, what's her name? The guy hung his head. He gave the name of a woman that he was not married to. And Dave said, honestly, she's your intellectual objection, isn't she? And he went, yeah, she is. You see, he knew that if he was to accept the claims of Christ, that he would have to change his lifestyle, and he wasn't willing to do that. That's the world choking out the fruitfulness of the gospel. Then there's another seed, and it falls on good soil. You remember that one? Say, yeah, well, it's like two hours ago when you started. But you remember that soil, right? You remember the sweet corn in Verde Valley and all that good stuff? Well, he's talking about fruit, not literal fruit. He's talking about spiritual fruit. He's talking about faithfulness. He's talking, some people say, well, fruit is other people coming to faith. That's a form of fruit. They talk about giftedness and using your gifts. That's a form of fruit. Uh, giving, that's a form of fruit, but it's not the exclusive. It's simply a result of faithfulness. And it marks a person who is a disciple of Jesus. I got to tell you, when Tim and I were talking, and we were talking about Chris, he said this, he said, Chris is the most faithful man I have ever met. Isn't that an awesome statement? Chris is one of those guys you don't have to wonder about. You know that he was a disciple of Christ. You know that he was a follower of Christ. Was he a perfect man? No, nobody is other than Jesus. But the most faithful man I've ever met, the most faithful to follow Jesus in whatever venue he's in. He served this church incredibly. He loved his family. He was a great friend to Tim and Jay. Their families were. This is not just losing a production manager. This is losing a close friend. Someone, as Tim says, the most faithful man I've ever met. And that says a lot. Chris was one of those guys that believed Jesus and the seed was sown on good soil and it produced incredible fruit. 30, 60, 100 fold, who knows? Only eternity will tell just the level of fruit that God used and produced in Chris. Now there's some other passages in here, parables, and I'm not going to spend as much time on them as we just did on these, but in verses 21 through 30, 25, notice what it says. It talks about a parable that is a lamp to be put under a basket or under a bed. He says, look, would you take a lamp, probably a Herodian lamp at the time, an oil lamp, would you light that? And then would you take it into your house, which does not have electricity? It's the only light in the house. Would you take a bushel or, or a pot or something and put on top of that? Well, what's the answer to that? No, that defeats the purpose. You wouldn't put it under a bushel. You wouldn't put it under the bed. What's Jesus saying by that? By the way, we get in trouble with parables when we try to press them for too many details. They were designed to teach a single, simpler truth. Like the first one is, why do some people receive and why do some people reject? Why is there different fruit? This one is what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Let your light shine before men. Why? That they can pat you on the back and say what a good person you are? 
No, why did Jesus say, let your light shine before men? That they may glorify your Father who is in heaven as they see your good works. Nobody lights a lamp and puts it. It defeats the purpose. We need to let it shine. What you guys were doing with this toy drive, that's letting your light shine. What you're doing in helping to support Rachel and the kids during this time, not just emotionally, but in a very practical, tangible way, financially, that's letting your light shine. When people see that, they see Jesus. And that's the point, isn't it? We're to reflect Jesus. It's not your light. It's not mine. It's Jesus' light. Another parable that he is is seed growing. He says this in verse 26. And he said the kingdom of God, by the way, most of the parables are about the kingdom of God. They're trying to teach what God's kingdom is like by comparing it to earthly things. The kingdom of God is as a man should scatter seed on the ground. Now that sounds familiar, but he's going to take a different twist with it. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. And when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. What's the kingdom of God like? The kingdom of God, God's purposes are at work even when you and I sleep. God is at work even though we don't understand how he's at work. It's an incredible thing. You can share the good news with somebody and it looks like it's on bad soil and yet sometime later it sprouts. Why? Because God's spirit has been at work. You know, if I were to ask you, what is the definition of successful witnessing, what would you say? Well, I heard this years ago and it really is good and it helps relieve a lot of that guilt that we feel. I'm not a very good witness. It said this, successful witnessing is simply taking the initiative to share the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results up to God. That's what it should be. Share the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit and leave the results up to God. You know, there have been a bunch of times when I've talked to people. There's a guy, his name is Matt, and his girlfriend wanted me to talk to him because he didn't know Christ. She did, and there was a problem in their relationship, and she so loved him, and she wanted him to come to Jesus. And so Matt and I started sitting down. Matt came out of a science background. Matt's today an attorney in Virginia. But anyway, so he would sit there, and he's got all these objections, all these questions. And so we went through them. My undergrad degree was in biology, so we could talk about some of the things that he really wrestled with, even the existence of God. Over a period of time, I never gave him an aha moment. I never gave him something that was like a zinger. This has got him. And I'm thinking, I don't know if this was like a colossal waste of time or not. Over a number of months, Matt came to the place where he professed faith in Jesus Christ as his personal Savior, as his Lord and Savior. And I said, Matt, what happened to all your objections? Here's what he said, I promise you. He said, you know what? Somehow those don't seem to matter as much anymore. He said, I found out that those were my security blanket. Those were a convenient place to hide from dealing with the truth of who is Jesus. Why did he die? And did he raise from the dead? And Matt placed his faith in the good news of Jesus that he died for his sins and was raised from the dead. And his life has been changed. He and his wife now, is, as I said, are involved. He's an attorney, but he's also involved in their church and they're leading a community group. and they're doing. He's just going on with Christ. 
How did that happen? Because I was so eloquent in my persuasive ability? No way. It's because simply put the truth out there. And even while I slept and I was not with him, who was at work? God, through his spirit, was at work. I oftentimes tell people, you know, you and I are responsible to share the good news. We're responsible to live it. But to see someone come across the threshold of faith, that's above our pay grade. Okay? That's God's work, not ours. He's the agent of conviction. He's the agent of regeneration. That's what Jesus is saying with this, right? The farmer sows, but then doesn't even know what's going on. And yet a crop of produce comes back. Then there's the parable of the mustard seed. With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed which is sown to the ground and it's the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air make their nest in it. Jesus is really saying through this that look, it's not important how big your faith is as what you place your faith in. A little bit of faith placed in a trustworthy object is better than a lot of faith placed in an untrustworthy object. He says the kingdom of God is like the mustard seed. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it goes in the ground, and according to what I understand, the mustard seed is it's an annual plant that within a few months it grows to be 10 or 12 feet high. And all the birds come and they eat the seeds out of it and they nest in its branches. The kingdom of God is like that. It may have small and inconspicuous beginnings, but it grows exponentially because God's the one that produces the growth. You guys may think here at, at Phoenix Bible Church, well, we're just a little church and we don't have many people compared to some of the bigger churches around and we've been here X number of years and you might be tempted to think that. You would be really, really wrong. Because what you're doing and the sowing the seeds of the gospel here in this community and in the Garfield community have exponentially huge ramifications toward God's kingdom purposes. I'm not just talking about the church and I'm not just talking about the millennial kingdom. I'm talking about all of God's kingdom purposes that I think are balled up together here. Let me tell you something. Years ago, we had a guy come in. His name is Will Gonzalez. And Will is an attorney with the city of Phoenix. He was one of our partners in working in the Palomino community, which is just about two or three half miles west of where we are at Desert Springs. We came in and asked him, and I didn't even know he was going to say this. But I said, Will, you're one of our partners in doing a lot of the revitalization of that community and doing mentoring and doing tutoring and doing all these types of things in the school and a lot of proof projects we have. Tell us why that's important. And I was not ready for what he said. He got up and gave all the reasons I thought he would say for why that was important. Then he said this. He said, I want to tell you a story, like a parable, about a little boy who grew up in a Puerto Rican home. And he had no father in that home. And it came Christmas time and there were no gifts that were going to be for our family. And yet a kindly gentleman, along with the church, came and brought gifts to us. And as he was leaving, he said kind words to me. Or he said kind words to this little boy. I gave it away. And he said, I was that little boy. Bridge, you never know. When we do something in the name of Jesus, right, guy? When we do something in the name of Jesus, what the results are going to be. You and I are not responsible for the outcome. We're responsible to take the initiative. 
Share the gospel, whether it's in word or whether it's in action, and leave the results up to God. And he will do great things. Do you believe that? I hope so, because he's using you. Your light is bright in Phoenix. Keep it up, and don't be disdained. Don't be discouraged. Even in the midst of difficulties, don't keep looking to Jesus. Keep lifting him up, and he will draw people to himself. I want to close with this because Jesus says that basically he's telling them, listen to the parables. That's the key thing, not just to hear the words, but to heed them, listen to them. I shared with you about my sister on a personal level, but I want to share with you on a personal and pastoral level. We had a worship pastor. I was talking with Julio about this in the patio a few minutes ago. And he came on, and we really were excited to have Jim with us. And in about a month to six weeks into the time that Jim was with us, he collapsed. He had a grandma seizure. And it came out that he had a very aggressive brain tumor. None of us knew that. He didn't know it. And so we walked with him for four and a half years through dealing with his tumor and walking with his family. When he died about four and a half years later, or before he died, just before, I said, Jim, we always believed that God was going to use you to help us learn to worship in a more genuine and authentic way. None of us had any idea what path that would take. But when we saw Jim up on that platform leading worship with a shaved head and a big scar on the side of his head, when we saw him on Sundays when he would lead worship and then he would walk off and collapse backstage with a seizure, when he would do all these types of things and yet he kept looking to Jesus and he grew tenderer in his relationship with Jesus, he was teaching us through his life what Jesus is talking about here. Whatever happens, don't ever turn away from him. Serve him, honor him, and God will receive the glory and we will be strengthened as a result. I just want to pray and thank God for you guys and I think we're going to continue with the song of worship, right, Liam? Father God, thank you for your presence here today. Thank you for the truth of your word and thank you for the power to bring this about, to accomplish it. I pray that the men and women and yes, the children that are here today would understand that the seed that's sown, whether it's this morning or whether it's in a community group, whether it's in other messages that are given, Father, that will fall on good soil and produce great fruit. And I pray that ultimately it will bring glory to the name of Jesus because we know that when we lift him up, he draws all people to himself. Thank you, Father, for this in Jesus' name. Amen.